Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm managing editor Dave Noyce, and I oversee our faith coverage. I'm joined again by senior religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Well, a few weeks after the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints published the sermons of Eliza R. Snow, comes the online release of additional diaries by a lesser known, but no less influential female leader in the faith's history. Emmeline B. Wells packed a lot into her 93 years of life. She was a three-time wife, mother of five daughters, a writer, editor, longtime Relief Society record keeper, and eventual Relief Society general president, and perhaps above all, a zealous advocate for suffrage and women's rights. Her diaries reveal much about her efforts to, in her words, advance women in moral and spiritual as well as educational work. Here to discuss this project and Wells' writings via Zoom are Cherry Silver, a co-editor of the online publication, and Kate Holbrook, the managing historian for the Church's History Department. Cherry and Kate, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're glad to have you here. Cherry, let's start with you. Uh, a lot of members probably know more about Eliza R. Snow and her story, and certainly she's certainly better known. Could you give us a brief biographical, biographical sketch of Emmeline B. Wells? Who was she? I'd like to. Think of Eliza as being a generation ahead of Emmeline. They both came in the early years across the plains from Nauvoo to Salt Lake City. Eliza was much more prominent. Emmeline was rearing a family until she, after the suffrage restart in 1870 and after the revitalization of Relief Society, then she gradually began to take a role. But early on, Emmeline was a New England girl from Worcester County, Massachusetts, who loved the outdoors, had a spirited imagination, and showed promise as a young writer. Her mother, who was widowed early, arranged for Emmeline to have a good education at the New Salem Academy. She was able to graduate at age 14 and teach a term of school in a one-room schoolhouse. Mm -hmm. Then her mother had encountered the Latter-day Saints, and she wanted Emmeline to listen to these missionaries. Under her mother's encouragement, but with resistance from the community members, Emmeline was baptized at age 14. At age 15, her mother saw an opportunity for her to go to Nauvoo if she married the son of the local branch president, a James Harris. Mm -hmm. So these two 15-year-olds were married and sent off to Nauvoo with his parents. It was not entirely a happy situation. <laughs> but Emmeline arrived in Nauvoo in May of 1844, in time to be greeted at the dock, her party was, by Joseph Smith, to shake his hand and to have a feeling towards him as a prophet that never left her. In fact, she amplified that witness throughout her life. She and her husband gave birth to a baby that same year of 1844. However, the little boy died in six weeks. Mm. They were all taken by fever and, and uh, uh, disease at that point. And her husband left to go to St. Louis to find work 
and never came back. Hmm. He sent her a letter saying he was looking for something and would she go with his parents, but they had left the church and gone in other directions. And she had determined she would stay with the saints. Hmm. After getting over her illness, she started teaching school and she had a chance to teach the young children of Newell and Ann Whitney. She received a patriarchal blessing from John Smith that said better things were coming for her in her life. And that turned out to be entering into a family and plural arrangement with Newell K. Whitney. In Nauvoo. In Nauvoo, mm -hmm. February of 18, um, what are we looking at? 1845. Okay. She left the next year with the Whitney family for winter quarters and then went on to Salt Lake. When, she, when her party arrived in 1848, she gave birth to her first daughter, the daughter of Newell K. Whitney, mm -hmm. named Belle. And two years later, she was pregnant with her second daughter, Melvina, when Newell K. Whitney suddenly died mm. in 1850. There she was, married twice with, and having lost husbands twice, two little girls, but she was resourceful and she turned back to teaching, teaching school. Mm -hmm. However, after two years, uh, after all, she was in her early 20s still. She said, there could be more for me in this life. And she wrote a letter of subtle proposal to Daniel H. Wells. Yeah, talk about that. I was going to ask you specifically about that. How is a subtle proposal done? I'm just curious <laughs> what it said. <laughs> it's 19th century um, epistolary rhetoric. <laughs> write a letter that doesn't say very much directly, but hints that maybe a Leverite marriage would be a nice thing to do for Daniel to do for his friend Newell. That is, take her as a wife and rear some children to him. So she becomes his wife, his what, sixth wife sixth or something? plural wife. Sixth plural wife, yes. Okay. And he uh, marries her in October. They have uh, three daughters over the next nine years. And uh, she is established in her own house on State Street, about hmm. third south, close enough to the Salt Lake Theater to take advantage of culture that was going on at that time, close to the Lion House where she was friends with the wives of Brigham Young, and uh, down the street and around the corner from Daniel H. Wells and his other wives who were living kitty corner to the Temple Square. Mm -hmm. Why don't you talk about uh uh, Cherry, about her ties now to sort of church organization with Relief Society and things like that. She starts in her own ward. They're living in the 13th ward. She's asked to be an assistant secretary. This is when she um, already has some married daughters, but the diaries have started in 1874, or the hmm. second range of the diaries start in 1874. And she gradually takes on responsibilities. She likes writing, so she doesn't mind being a secretary, but she also is asked to direct the visiting teachers program, conduct the teachers meeting once a month. And that's her first time to lead a group. And later on, 
she speaks at the Saturday retrenchment meeting, this time before men. And that is another milestone for her. Hmm. But it's when she starts writing for the woman's exponent, then edited by Lula Green Richards, that her talent for writing and expression comes forth. She writes under a pseudonym, in fact, several of them. She writes as Blanche Beechwood. Blanche is her middle name. Beeches are the trees she loved in New England. But this is the voice of the outspoken social advocate and critique of women's life and their relationships in a, a growing society. She also writes as Aunt M, and that's her reminiscent persona, where she talks about holidays back in New England and the beauty of the woods. She writes poems as Emile or as Amethyst. Amethyst was her birthstone since she was born in February. And she develops a whole romantic set of personae for herself. At the same time, she's kind of a practical home mom. And her daughters are teenagers and they bring boys into the house, and it's in her home that the famous Wasatch Literary Association is formed with people like Orson F. Whitney and Bud Whitney, Rudger Clausen, Heber J. Grant, and the girls of that age. She is eager to bring culture into however she can into her own family and to their circle of friends. That's when Eliza R. Snow taps her and says, Emmeline, you've been writing some pretty good articles for us. Lula Green Richards, the editor of The Woman's Exponent, is ill. Would you kindly write the editorial for this month? And Emmeline says in the diaries we have posted online, that's just the sort of thing I like to do. <laughs> but I may be criticized by my family for stepping out into public this way. So I You've already mentioned a little bit, but how are the two of them different? What, what, what were her gifts that were different than Eliza's? Eliza was a woman of authority. And uh, I think we see that in the discourses. They're wonderful in advocacy and expression. Emmeline was more of a romantic, but she's also more practical. I know that Eliza had to support herself and was a seamstress. But Emmeline had dealt with these personalities of babies, growing children, teenagers, young marrieds. And she was more open to people who were coming in from outside into this expanding Salt Lake society. She was more open to having them into her house. She liked talking about national events. She enjoyed culture and felt that people who had expressed themselves in uh, Elite language were just the sort she wanted to deal with. And so she was uh, more accommodating to non-Latter-day Saints than I think Eliza was. What about you, Kate? How do you see the differences between these two women or their role in history? Eliza Arsenault was really establishing what felt to some like new organizations, even though Relief Society had been established in Nauvoo, she reestablished it in Utah, whole new membership base there, establishing an organization for young women, establishing the primary organization. She was really seen as this presidentess 
over all of the female church members. Whereas Emmeline Wells, I see much more as a liaison between what was going on in Utah and what was going on nationally and furthering conversations between women here and uh, women more broadly in the nation and not just women in the nation. What were the surprises for you in the diaries? I was surprised at the contradictions in Emmeline's character. On one hand, she could be so romantic. On the other hand, she could be a driver and hard worker and sarcastic, even at times. She, she did not tolerate foolishness easily. She liked people to be well prepared. <clears throat> at one time, Uretha Labarth, the first legislator in the state later, came to her with a paper she was to present at a national meeting. And Emmeline looked it over and said, some smart lawyer, is, male lawyer, has written this for her. I need to set her straight in any number of ways. <laughs> <laughs> so she had this mixture of personality. And she also, I think I was surprised at uh, how little she had in the way of resources. Never had much money. Daniel lost his, his companies and had to sell her house. She was living pretty much on the edge, trying to survive on money from the exponent that she was editing and owned. At the same time, she was generous. If a woman stopped by, having had hard luck and a little baby to take care of, Emline said, well, maybe I should take him in. She was on the city relief committee and was around collecting donations to help people who were poor. And yet she herself had so little that she often missed the most major meetings of her life with the national people because she didn't have train fare to go east to Washington. Kate, can I ask a, a general question going back to this proposal letter? There's one other question I wanted to ask on that. Were those kinds of things, did that happen frequently uh, in the days of plural marriage in the early church? Uh, uh, people offering themselves up or, you know, proposing, why not this? I mean, how, is that, was that common? I haven't seen instances, frequent instances of women inviting men to take them on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> why, am I not, why am I not surprised? But Okay. <laughs> I will mention one example, and that's uh, Mary Lois Walker Morris, who was married to Elias Morris's brother, who died young. And uh, that be the brother, as he died, asked his Elias to take on Mary Lois. Hmm. So it was a Leverite situation. So the Leverite situation was common. If, if a man was dying and leaving more than one wife behind in particular, then, then it was frequent that he would look around or if his death was too sudden that his family members or close friends would uh, take on his wives to make sure that their their temporal needs were taken care of mm -hmm. wasn't this early social security <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> so cherry I, I was poking around the website the last several days and it's it's really fascinating and really reader friendly um, it looks like from the chronology, uh, 
Emmeline, she outlives obviously the son who died in, as an infant. And I think she outlives two of her daughters. Um, when her daughter Emmeline dies, I think it was April 8th, 1878. She writes, it's one of the most terrible days of my eventful life. And she writes that all the world is dark and I know not what to do. I'm just wondering, as you're a researcher going through this, when you come across these hugely sad moments in your subject's life, does it affect you in any way? You mourn with them. That is true. And uh, as uh, Kate has sometimes pointed out, diaries are written chronologically. They're not memoirs. People are recording instances that happen to them at the moment and their emotions. They don't know what is coming. And, and, mm -hmm. and she was a dedicated diarist. I mean, you have 47, right? That yes. eventually will all be online. Yes. Um, were there possibly more because there was like a huge gap where, where there weren't any? Maybe she was too busy to keep a, a journal slash diary or maybe they are gone? Right, they may have been gone. When she died, her daughters divided them. Belle mm -hmm. and Annie were around. And they, the ones we have came down through the Annie Wells Cannon family, were acquired by Brigham Young University. Then two more came in later, so there could be others out there. Mm -hmm. What's the gap where, there, where we have no diaries that we know of? What's the years? Between um, the first diary we call 1844 to 46, mm -hmm. but there are some genealogical notations written in the 1860s, 62 and 69. Gap then to 1874. Mm. And some other gaps later. We don't have an 1880. Okay. We missed some things in the 1900s where she more has a, a record book of travel rather than a real diary. So some years are much more rich than others in data and in stories. So what, what do the diaries say about women speaking in tongues and giving healing blessings? You know, I, I love the fact that they took this so matter of fact. If you went out with Aunt Zina, Zina D.H. Young, she loved to speak in tongues. And she would turn to a local lady or she would turn to Emmeline to interpret for her. That that practice died out towards the end of the century. I don't think the younger women were as comfortable with it. On the other hand, this washing and anointing of pregnant women for, for their giving birth confinement was a common practice and it was a high social occasion. Often the recipient, Annie, her daughter herself, would prepare a lovely meal for the sisters. They would come, they would chat and uh, socialize. Then they would wash and anoint the mother to be before her birth. And it was uh, <clears throat> quite heartwarming. I was looking at one instance today in March of uh, 1894 when um, they did it. She went with Zina to Bountiful, that faraway place outside of Salt Lake, <laughs> and were met by the Howard sisters. They spoke in meetings, Zina spoke in tongues, Emmeline reluctantly interprets. Then they go to a private home 
Washington anoints three mothers to be for their confinements. And then they're asked to see a sister who's been suffering with rheumatism and is declining and they administer to her. So there they've done healing blessings, washing for birth and tongues all in one day. Wow. She said at the end of the day, it was a most fatiguing day, although exceedingly interesting and out of the common. So this didn't happen every trip, but it was available. You see in Emmeline's life and diary entries, the same trajectory that you saw in the church at large, where the practice of women giving blessings preparatory to childbirth, but also blessings of healing was slowly dying out. So at the end of her own life, she was uh, mostly asking men for blessings of healing or comfort or insight. Whereas earlier in her life, she, I think, would have asked women at least as frequently as she asked men for those same blessings. So what she, what she writes in her diaries about the word of wisdom at the time, Kate, is that similar to other women of the time? Yeah, I think, Peggy, that's one of the things that will surprise a lot of readers is to see her mention beer and wine in her diaries and, and not with any ap apologies about it. She'll, she'll drink it. Somebody will give her something that she really likes as a gift and, and she'll drink it. And, and that matches general church practice then. The leaders, including Emmeline, who spoke about this, were very clear that drunkenness was something people needed to avoid but they were not yet interpreting the word of wisdom. Most of them, some were, but most people were not yet interpreting the wisdom, word of wisdom as a complete, um, as something that they, they meant they couldn't drink at all. They, it, they saw it as a, a code calling for temperance and wisdom. So how did she get involved in women's issues, women's rights, especially suffrage? Cherry. Good. I, I think we have to look at um, the, the stretch of time in the early 1870s when she was not writing a diary that we have, when the great indignation meeting was held in 1870, when the right of vote came to women in the state of Utah. She's not on those big lists. She may have been there, but she was not recording that in records we have. But as, uh, as Eliza took her on, one of the things Eliza asked Emmeline to do was help write petitions to, for women in Utah to sign, to send back to the national leaders to be taken to Congress in order to support the 16th Amendment then or uh, universal suffrage for women in, in the federal system. She proved herself able to do that, to gather signatures. Women were collecting money at that time. And then she became involved also in defending Latter-day Saint women against charges from the Anti-Polygamy Society. That was uh, quite a strong voice in Utah in 1877. At that point, it was felt by church leaders, men as well as women, that perhaps it would be useful to have some Utah women go to Congress and carry one of these petitions, speak to the senators and congressmen, talk to the president if possible, 
and make a case for liberality towards the Latter-day Saints. Mm. This was uh, at the time when legislation was rolling out against the Latter-day Saints. And certainly there was a national campaign, particularly from Protestant leaders, to condemn this outrageous social practice. Cherry, what presidents did she meet? U.S. presidents. Was it Hayes? Her, her first one was this Rutherford B. Hayes. Okay. One she sat down with and met his wife also and gave her message in 1879. Then, uh, well, then there was president-to-be, James Garfield, who came to Salt Lake. And she met him along with other women. They decorated his carriage, went out to Salt Air. She had a chance to converse with him. She met uh, Ulysses S. Grant when his party came through. Later on, she took a message to Theodore Roosevelt from her son-in-law, John Q. Cannon, who was part of the Rough Riders. And she also attended the McKinley inauguration, thanks to Senator Thomas Kearns, who thought she was a valuable asset, and hmm. he invited her, paid her way back to the inauguration. Finally, she had this famous visit from Woodrow Wilson when he and his wife came to Salt Lake and wanted to meet the lady who had been responsible for grain storage and had made grain available to the United States at the end of the World War One. Wow, that's an incredible span of presidents there. Uh, I'll say. In respects. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> five feet tall. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Cause so what was her relationship like with Susan B. Anthony? And did she share uh, Anthony's views of black women? Did she have those race issues like Susan did? Sorry with that question first. I don't know that she was generous toward black women in any particular way. She uh, mentions uh, women in her own community like Sarah Chambers who did some kindnesses for her. And so she, she knew that there were blacks in, in Utah. But uh, she was not particularly, uh, Kate can add something to this if she has some feelings about it. I don't think she was particularly generous or particularly indifferent. To their, their needs. When she goes to Atlanta in 1895 for that famous meeting just before Utah statehood, they of course are in the South and she is invited to speak Sunday in a black church. She's advised by the local people not to do that. So she turns down the author. By the local white people she's advised not to do that. Okay, what, what, what do you think about the, um, it's my understanding that the suffragists split into two groups, one that were embracing all women and one group, Susan Anthony's group, that didn't embrace black women and the Mormon women went with Anthony, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it, there's more going on there than that one issue. But yeah. it's, it's definitely true that that's the group they ended up going with. And, and we know that Anthony and, and Wells had a close relationship and stayed friends. Um, it, so we know that happened. I, I would love it. This is a crowdsourcing opportunity. I myself haven't seen any 
what we call today racist, well, what we call today racist language in wells, but sometimes there are listeners who are, who have been able to find those things that we haven't. So I, I hope that somebody would comment or call in if they have some insight on this. Point. I would, I would mention that there were two organizations to begin with. Sri Bench in our virtual lecture points out that the more conservative group, the American Women's Suffrage Association would not tolerate Latter-day Saints or pl plural women. But Susan and B. Anthony in the National Women's Suffrage Association said anyone who's not, who's on our cause, we will accept. We don't agree with your religion or your social practices, but you're willing to help us so we will take you as members. When those two organizations merged in the early 1890s, then there was a little bit more concern about having Latter-day Saint women in again, except that the manifesto came along. And so the way opened up, as I see it, for more compatibility. Um, so, so what do you think uh, Emmeline will be remembered for, mostly? Well, she'd love to be remembered for her poetry, but most of us find it sentimental <laughs> and not enduring. She would probably love to be remembered for uh, the, um, the work she did with young people. She loved organizing primaries and helping out these young adults and teenagers. But she probably will be remembered for her boldness and connecting these Western women with the Eastern and building relationships that benefited them both through suffrage and through other matters. So Kate, the, the church has, has, it seems obvious that the church is making a real effort in recent years to uh, make early Latter-day Saint women more prominent and known in their contributions between publishing of, you know, Relief Society minutes and sermons and highlighting some of these early leaders. Um, do you think there'll come a time that Latter-day Saints, when they're studying their own history, will be as familiar with some of these early female leaders outside of the Emma Smiths of the world as they are with their early prophets and apostles? It definitely depends on the, the member, uh, but that, that time is now, that opportunity is now. We have not just more information available about 19th century women, but also 20th century women. And if church leaders and regular members are not familiar with women who played an important role in the history of the church, then uh, they're ignoring <laughs> all of the exciting work and developments that are going on right now. They're, they're exposing themselves as not in the course of things, not up to date when they <laughs> ignore those resources and those voices. Yeah. So you're saying the information's there, right? Uh, and becoming much more widely available uh, and publicized. Yeah. I would add that I think we need to make these people personalities not just names, mm -hmm. but people who had real issues, problems to solve, and ways of, of uh, furthering the people of their own times. So I think as we know, 
we could make a connection. You know, Liza R. Snow wrote, Oh, My Father. If we think of Emmeline Wells brought us the boat, and she also loved, uh, uh, was a colorful character in her own right, we'll remember them. So uh, for, for a question for both of you, and Kate, we'll start with you first as we start to wrap up. What do you, Kate, hope people take away from these diaries? And, and then, Cherry, what, I'd like your thoughts on the same question. Two things come to mind immediately. And one is I hope people see from reading her diary entries that these are not polished personal essays. These are reports on what happened, and they're really rich. And whether you're a scholar or just an interested reader, you can gain a lot from these entries. And I hope that encourages more of us to keep our own records because re records are what make the personality, it, the name acquire the personality and color that Cherry was talking about. Mm -hmm. I also hope that readers will be inspired by her example of moral courage. As, as Cherry indicated, she, she started off um, very young in, in an experience fraught with loss. And, and she really had to be resourceful and she had to stand up for herself and for her very young children and find a way to support herself uh, and her children and also to pursue this vision that she developed of making the world a better place for all of humanity and particularly for the women of the world as well as the women in the church. And I, I just find her personal growth and her willingness to take risks and to say yes to opportunities, even if she didn't feel completely ready to take those on, to be very inspiring myself. Cherry, what do you, what do you hope readers take from this? I would add that we get an insight into a whole society. Many of us think the pioneers came to Utah, and uh, then we had the manifesto, and then what came <laughs> thereafter? Very little. But there were several layers of society. After the railroad, life in Salt Lake was quite sophisticated. They had oyster bars and ice cream parlors and uh, imported flowers from San Francisco. The bookstores were crammed with books. She could step downtown and buy an up-to-date novel. And she read widely and kept up with what was happening in the larger world. This was a society where people had influence. And uh, if I've taken up to reading the society pages and I can see how many groups, religious or social, were meeting every week, every month to try to do good, to rally people and make them better. She herself organized two literary groups and helped with the organization of, of the Daughters of the Revolution and the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers. So she knew how important it was for women to rally together. We're going to see this society in different light. And I encourage readers to press the search button because they're going to find their own ancestors there. She records probably 2,500 to 3,000 people, different names passing through her diaries over these years. I found my great-grandparents I hope others will find people they know. That's fascinating. So, uh, Cherry, remind people where they can find this online. Want to go to churchhistoriansprress.org 
backslash Emmeline hyphen B hyphen Wells. Mm -hmm. There's a question mark language English, but I think you'll get at it that way. And you'll find them very easy to maneuver. There are introductions, there are images, there are biographies. Great. Thank you. Cherry Silver and Kate Holbrook, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you. Enjoyable. Thank thanks. You. And stay safe, okay? Our thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Chris Samuels. We remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up, and we'll talk again next time on Mormon Life.